Today we are observing Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, sanctity is not a word that we use a great deal in uh, everyday language. So what does it mean on this day? Well, sanctity of life means that we view life as sacred from conception through natural death. Those words are chosen carefully, and it speaks to what God has told us as the absolute objective standard in his word. So these are not man's definition that man came up with with a desire to uh, sound good or try to instill value in human life. This is uh, God's word. And God started it in Genesis 1 when he stamped his image, or tells us in Genesis 1 that he stamped his image on every believer, every individual. In fact, not every just every believer, but every man, woman, and child ever born in this world is stamped with the image of God. And, and that means at the very minimum that we are rational and that we are social and that we are spiritual. It also means that we are capable of loving and being loved. Here's what Moses recorded for us in Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Those are beautiful words. And they speak to our dignity and our worth because of God's absolute standard. We are made in his image. We are his image bearers in this world. And not only that, but then when we turn over to Psalm 139, we have the psalmist telling us in those beautiful words what took place in our mother's womb after conception, as we were made and hand-designed and hand-tailored by God himself. It tells us this in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Psalmist is thanking God for his intentional design of himself, David, but also of everyone who has ever lived. God gives us incredible dignity and worth. Our value is stamped by him. We are esteemed by the living God of the universe because we are his handiwork. And he is the one who has designed us. And not only, we read later in that psalm, not only has he designed us, intentionally and created us and stayed present with us. He has planned out our lives every day. This is what we read in verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The Lord has designed our lives, but he has also planned out our lives and he is the one who is responsible for bringing us into being and for taking us out of being. Sanctity of life is certainly a pro-life statement, a pro-life view. 
And, and typically, when we think of pro-life, we think of abortion and, and the cultural wars. And, and those are being fought all the time. And, and that is a key facet of it. But there is so much more to uh, sanctity of life than strictly the unborn uh, child. Uh, Like I said, it entails conception through natural death. And so today we want to broaden our view uh, just a little bit as we look at other ways that we can think about the sanctity of life, not just uh, through abortion, which we... uh, participate in fighting that battle uh, through politicians that we support and the, the uh, legislation that they write through prayer vigils uh, down on Luetta at Planned Parenthood through supporting the Pregnancy Assistance Center and looking after those with unwanted pregnancies and those who are healing from past abortions. But today we want to broaden our view, and we're going to do that two ways. Uh, I've asked uh, Nathan and Julie Mahart to uh, come up and give us a testimony in regard to their adoption of glory. So we'll think of it that way in terms of the dignity of the life of a child and inviting them into your family. And then we'll also look at the topic of euthanasia, as Chris mentioned in the uh, welcome. So Nathan and Julie, would you guys come on up? I've asked them to just share their heart as how God led them through this process of adoption. You have three other children, Emma, Graham, and Warren, and uh, tell us a story about how the Lord brought you to glory. Okay, well, Julie took notes, so she's going to start. Um, adoption was kind of always on my radar as a way to possibly have children because um, some medical issues that I had growing up made it unclear whether I would be able to have um, them any other way. But in 2015, we'd been married for a few years already and um, had two young children biologically and some close friends who fostered uh, medically fragile kids. And I had been sensing for a long time that God was um, preparing me to Um, get ready to give up a lot of my comfort and self-concern and uh, be willing to lay down my life to follow him in new ways. Um, I was reading books called Radical and Crazy Love and Anything, (laughs) and um, I thought that saying yes to something big would look like maybe selling everything and moving to China or something like that. Um, I really had no concept that adoption could feel like saying that kind of a yes at that point. Yeah, I hadn't either. I don't think we had talked much about adoption until we started really hanging out with um, our friends who had medically, who they accepted, they fostered medically fragile, medically needy children. And um, over the course of a few years, just kind of, we did small group with them. So over the course of a few years hanging out with them and kind of hosting the small group with them and seeing them accept kids over and over again, um, well, it really like planted a seed, but also we, we, I struggled with it a lot. So there was a couple nights where um, the father, husband in, in that family um, really kind of struggled with why he should keep saying yes, you know, to, to these kids that needed placement. And, and of course, I was like, so say no, you know. 
um, and we, we argued over it. And I, I came away one night feeling really, really disturbed by um, like how, how willing they were to suffer for what they were doing. Um, these were kids coming in with like really traumatic experiences and like lots of machines that they had to hook up all the time and lots of things that they had to do and like missing kidneys and all sorts of stuff. Um, cost, yeah, like every day they would go to the emergency room almost, you know, so, and they're still doing this. They're still like, um, they live in Alaska now, but they're doing this still. Um, so I, I was really, I had a night where I was just really upset and I was really, um, upset and moved by it, but also, you know, wrestling with um, why if he feels like he can't say no, why is it okay for me to not say yes in this situation? Why is it okay, why is it like, why is it that I can say no to all of these people that need help, kids that need help, but, um, but he can't, you know? And so I think, like, we didn't do anything at that point, but it was, it was um, impactful for me to kind of start thinking about um, adoption, you know. So at that point, we got certified to be able to help those friends just a little bit. Um, when they would go in for hospital stays for kidney transplants and things like that, we wanted to be able to babysit their kids that were wards of the state at the time. Um, so we got certified to do that, and the, the child that we ended up caring for most often was a five-year-old little girl who was totally blind and had multiple cognitive and physical disabilities. And during the time that we were caring for her, the plan with CPS changed from reunification with the birth family to um, ultimately ad adoptive placement is what they were going to need for her. So at that point, I started to consider what would it be like to be her permanent caregiver instead of just babysitting her. And that's when it started to occur to me that that would be a big yes. <laughs> um, but God shut the door really quickly at that point on pursuing her for adoption. And it wasn't until a few years later when we were living in another state and we had just had this guy. Um, that we were connected with her case again and found out that she still needed an adoptive placement. She'd been moved around from lots of different places during those years. Um, and the Lord really led Nathan at that point to, to consider um, adopting her, and we ended up doing it at that point. Yeah. Um, we had put her picture on the fridge, and it said, like, praying for, you know, her. And um, so every time you go to get a snack, you know, you faced with her picture. And I think that was impactful, too, you know. Um, but, uh, so we were praying for her at that point in time, and we were trying to wrestle with, um, like, what our level of praying should be, you know? What should we be praying for? And we were in Iowa at the time, and she was still down here in Texas, so it seemed like a given, like we were just going to pray for her, and that would be, that would be fine. Um, and then one night, I had a dream, which I won't relate to you the weird details of, because dreams are weird. But... <laughs> I immediately woke up realizing that not being willing to be her father was the same as casting her away. Um, and so I immediately went to Julie and said, I think we need to pray about adopting her, and I think we need to kind of start thinking about this more seriously. Um, and versus the previous time when she had kind of thought about it, I was pretty focused on, like, grad school and doing all sorts of other things at the time. So I didn't really pray through it and think about it much before that. But, um, but yeah, this time around, I was, I was pretty set on it and felt that um, I could be her daddy. We, we've all had fathers. We've all had, whether they're good or bad, you know. 
Um, mine was pretty good, uh, but she didn't have one, right? So I thought I could be that, you know? And I didn't know her, I didn't love her at that point in time, but I felt like I probably would after some time, you know, and that stayed true. Um, but even the song, Good, Good Father, I, was, um, I feel like um, adoption is almost like putting your money where your mouth is, because um, we have been adopted, we have been um, accepted and justified and redeemed to God, and there's no undoing that, you know? We can mess up all day long every day and come back to Him for forgiveness every day, and He will be faithful in forgiving. And so now we, um, we get the chance to practice that. And we don't do it as well as God does, but we get the chance to practice forgiveness and adopting and laying down our lives for somebody else in a way that is um, different than, you know, just having your own bio kids, I think, right? But meaningful. Yeah, well, kid transfer. <laughs> So I saw how God had gotten our hearts ready to say that, yes. Um, but it turns out that every minute of every day is another chance to say yes, and I'm still learning how to do that <laughs> with her. Um, caring for her involves a lot of opposition from her because she doesn't know or understand what she needs and doesn't like receiving instructions. Um, it's exhausting, and it strains connection and affection. But she needs someone to be there um, to meet those needs just the same. And her needs matter deeply to God. Um, and so we're thankful that God made it clear that he wanted it to be us that's, that's there doing that for her. Uh, we're also thankful that we knew going into it that we were going into her world and not like rescuing her and pulling her into something better necessarily. Um, a foster mom wrote a blog back in 2015. I read it and it has stuck with me since. Uh, she wrote about saying yes to all the overwhelming difficulties of parenting kids who have been through so much and have such hard roads to walk ahead of them. She said, these kids are forced to do hard things every day, and the least we can do is say, yes, I will do hard things with you. I will be the one to hold your hands and calm your tantrums, and by God's grace, we'll figure this out together. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says, the parts of the body should have equal concern for each other, and if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That continues to motivate me and bring me comfort um, when I'm feeling discouraged about the stress level in our home or the way it affects the family. Um, it's good to know that it's okay that it's hard uh, and even that we don't feel very good at it a lot of the time. <laughs> the day after the caseworker flew Glory up to live with us in Iowa, we were completely overwhelmed and um, surprised by how much it felt like our lives had been turned upside down overnight. We felt like, what have we done? But the Lord gave me um, this passage in Isaiah 41 that I come back to so often. He says, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And verse 13 says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. 
And he's just done that so faithfully um, over the last two years. And we look forward to seeing him continue to do that. And we trust that he will for us and for her. Thank you guys very much. Did you get it? Is that it? Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a very moving story for you guys to share that with us of how God moved in your hearts uh, in essence to promote sanctity of life and it forces all of us to ask the same question God what are you doing in my life to help me promote sanctity of life and for some of us that might be as simple as treating a homeless person with dignity for us others of us it might be uh, jumping into fostering or adopting uh, for others, it might be uh, working on the front lines in the cultural war of abortion uh, to fight that. Uh, for others, it might be serving in a hospice for end-of-life issues. Uh, the Lord has given all of us the opportunity to dignify others and to value life. And I appreciate you guys so much uh, for sharing the heart issues that go into uh, obeying God like that and how God has come through for you. I do want to let you know, we do have two tables out in the uh, hallway that uh, ministries that we've interacted with a great deal over the last couple of decades. One is Pregnancy Assistance Center North. We helped bring them up to Conroe, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago or so. And um, they uh, work primarily with unwanted pregnancies, but they have all kinds of health care and, and all of that. And uh, there are lots of brochures there and lots of ways to volunteer. There's a brochure about that as well. And then the table next to it is called Life First. It used to be called Montgomery Right to Life. And uh, they, are, they have a very broad spectrum of ways to serve and promote the sanctity of life. And the card that is on your uh, chair today is uh, prayer points that they put together for us. And uh, I am going to ask you just this week to pray through this whole card every day this week, if you would. And uh, that would be one way that you can promote sanctity of life by talking to God. So we've heard from Nathan and Julie. Uh, we know that we typically think of abortion with pro-life, but today uh, I want to go further. I want to stretch our thinking to end-of-life uh, issues, to the, the topic of euthanasia. And um, that helps broaden our perspective. Euthanasia takes place at the end of life. And uh, I said that uh, we believe that life is sacred from conception to natural death. Well, euthanasia is a topic that uh, would disagree with that. Now, traditionally, traditionally, euthanasia meant just uh, giving great comfort so that somebody could die more easily. Uh, and that's literally the, the meaning of the word. It's made up of two Greek words. And, and the you means good or easy. And the thanatos or thanasia is uh, the word for death. And so it literally means good death, easy death. So again, traditionally, it meant that we would provide a comfortable death. But that has been changed uh, by our culture. And um, it is a term that instead of uh, relieving patients of pain, uh, doctors and even medical profession at times are involved in the taking of the lives. Here's the key issue. Uh, over time, most people, the thinking of most people in our culture has taken on this attitude. And I wrote it down so I, I can be, I want to read what I've written so I can be specific. Uh, what used to be 
passive management of pain has become active termination of a suffering patient's life. Many commonly accepted definitions today, you can Google it, you can look at Webster, you can look at dollars, actually use words like putting to death or killing. Uh, these are the types of words that are used in the definition uh, today, and that's why it's become uh, so commonplace uh, to, in our thinking uh, to think of euthanasia as more of an active, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, uh, action that has taken place at the end of life. John Stott simplifies the discussion this way. He says there is voluntary, typically assisted suicide, and there is involuntary death occurring by someone else's consent when patient is incapable. He writes this, it is essential to clarify that euthanasia, whether voluntary or involuntary, is intentional killing because it deliberately introduces death into a situation where it did not previously exist. Now, Many of you and I have been in the hospital many times with families trying to make tough decisions about end of life. So I want you to hear this as well. On the other hand, to withhold or withdraw useless treatment from a terminally ill patient is not euthanasia. Administrating painkillers to a dying patient may sometimes hasten death, could, could affect respiration and things like that. But that's just incidental. The primary purpose is to relieve pain. There is no easy, precise definition on when death is irreversibly present. But I like Stott's simple summary as we face this cultural issue. He says there is a fundamental difference, and this is what it comes down to, between causing a death, causing someone to die, which is euthanasia, and allowing him or her to die which is not. So there are three common issues in this debate that I just want to look at quickly this morning because they come into play for us. And and these are discussions that we have when we're caregiving, when our friends are caregiving, when we think about what's going on culturally, when we read the headlines. And, And the three common issues are this, value, fear, and autonomy. And those are typically what become the issues as someone discusses this topic. The question of value, let's look at that. Well, as we said from God's word, human beings have intrinsic value given by God. We have an inherent value. He esteems our lives. He has breathed into us life. He has designed our lives. He has created us, temperament, personality, bone structure. God is personally involved and he loves us unconditionally. He has given us value. We saw that in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 139. Not only has he made us capable of loving and being loved, but he loves us unconditionally. Now, the Darwinian view, the evolutionist view, says there is no distinction between animal and human. And so we can put down a human just like we can put down our pet when we take them to the vet. That is not a view that has a high esteem of life. God has given us an objective, absolute standard to guide us. And in our culture, that standard is eroding from an objective, absolute standard that everyone has dignity and eternal value to a quality of life issue, a quality of life discussion. And that is what people use when they talk about uh, 
whether or not to end someone's life. And, and I think that's an arbitrary standard. I personally think it's like the creature telling the creator, I have a better plan than you do. I have a way of doing it. Once families and medical professionals go down that, that road, they can justify any decision based on their definition of what constitutes quality of life. And sometimes it's their own quality of life as a caregiver. That's an arbitrary standard. That's not an objective standard. A culture which devalues life says things like elderly, terminally ill patients have a duty to die and get out of the way. As a quote from a Colorado governor back in 1984, when C. Everett Koop, former Surgeon General, was writing his book with Francis Schaeffer, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, he came across a number of people. He said just hundreds of people in nursing homes all over the country that apologized for taking up a bed. for being alive, for taking medication. That's a form of coercion when the culture says your life is not worthwhile and you don't deserve to live and you're taking our resources, whether it's my personal time and energy or my bed in the hospital. That's what happens in a culture that looks at convenience as an arbitrary standard. Now, note this, holding to sanctity of life does not mean that there are not difficult decisions to make about treatment and care at the end of life. What it does mean is that those decisions will be guided by an objective standard, God's truth, that there is not a design on taking life but allowing life to die. There often comes a time when treatment is no longer beneficial. This past week, a friend of Gwen and, and mine, more her friend than mine, but um, was a husband of a friend of hers, a good friend of hers, uh, was, was going into the hospital for chemo. And he came back the next day to enter hospice at home because they realized that uh, he is irreversibly on the path to death. And it is uh, coming quickly, and uh, they can continue to destroy his body with chemo, but it's not going to change anything. And so the decision was made, coordinated with hospice and family and doctors, to uh, go home and just enjoy the relationships that you've got. Uh, there are not easy answers, but we want to hold to that absolute standard that we are not going to take a life. The question of value is answered by God's objective, absolute standard, that life is sacred. What about fear? Well, fear, uh, specifically, what fear does um, euthanasia supposedly relieve? Well, people would uh, list these three fears that advocates of euthanasia bring up. Fear of uncontrollable and unbearable pain. Fear of indignity, being subjected to the dehumanizing effect of having tubes all over your body and people controlling your schedule. And then a corollary to that is the fear of dependence because we'd like to write our own script. But euthanasia is not the only way to escape those fears. We can turn to the Lord, not only to his biblical truth and his promises, but to his very presence and the power of his presence. So when we think about pain, he's given us things with palliative care. That is a great answer. And again, that's essentially what um, 
euthanasia was uh, when it was first discussed, even among the Greeks. How can we? Carol Fox gave me uh, this phrase that is commonly thrown around in hospice. She used to serve in a hospice unit, and they would talk about uh, maximizing care while minimizing suffering. And so they have ways of dealing with pain. I've interacted with a lot of um, hospice groups, uh, groups that we used when we were caregiving uh, for parents, and, and then also uh, just the number that you guys have used uh, over the years. And uh, they are incredible people. Uh, they are gifted with phenomenal compassion. And they are given extreme wisdom. And the experience that builds up in, in working with people, uh, they understand what's going on at the end of the life and how to bring comfort and how to help a patient uh, deaden the pain and, and not dim the consciousness, at least as much as possible, so that they can be alert for family. There are great things going on, and, and hospice professionals are great at it, but experts in palliative care say that the vast majority of all pain and terminal disease can be relieved to some level. Indignity is the second uh, fear that is listed. Um, and here, we've got to work to serve others in the process of, uh, of dying. We've got to be a support. Galatians 6 talks about bearing the burdens of others. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who reje rejoice. Just our presence alone can lift spirits and can make them feel human again. A listening ear, a kind eye a smile, a word of encouragement, or your favorite promise from Scripture is a way to restore that sense of dignity for an ind individual that is fighting that. And then, of course, the issue of dependence. Everybody wants to write their own script. We feel helpless when the future is uncertain, and we don't have the mental or physical capacity to do anything about it. But the truth is, we're not in control of our lives. As I read from verse 16, God has ordained our lives, and he knows where it is going, and he knows because he's planned it out for us, and we, we can't change that. Uh, scripture reminds us that there is a time to live and a time to die in Ecclesiastes 3. We are depend, dependent on God's determination, and we can find rest in tr trusting him. And, and the believer need not fear death because of the promises and the presence of Jesus Christ. In fact, death is simply just a doorway to his presence for all eternity. And that's an incredible thing uh, to consider. So fear uh, does not have to be dealt with through euthanasia. It can be dealt with through the presence and promises of Christ. And then the third issue is autonomy. And the question there is that they want to ask is, don't we have the right to self-determination? It's a question of human autonomy, self-determination, and the biblical truth that we are. Rational and volitional beings, that's part of how God made us. We make choices. We have some independence, and we are accountable to God for the choices that we make in this life. That's part of being human. It's an essential part of our identity and our self-respect. Well, Stott suggests when we think about... Uh, this issue that the advocates for euthanasia bring up in terms of autonomy, that we look at it in terms of freedom, dependence, and life itself. And so in terms of freedom, the truth is we don't have complete autonomy. 
in our lives ever. God is perfect and infinite in every way, and he doesn't have complete autonomy because he is limited by his nature. Uh, we're told in, in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy that, uh, Paul, that God cannot deny himself. He cannot contradict himself. He cannot tell a lie. So even God doesn't have complete autonomy and freedom that way. We enjoy freedom to the greatest extent when we live according to his design for us. And his design for us is to treat life as sacred, not in rebellion to him. And so we want to accept the process of dying with grace and not attempt to put it into our own hands. Dependence, the second level, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. Dependence is the opposite of autonomy. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that uh, we have to live in dependence uh, upon God. We do that for our physical sustenance. We do that for our salvation, all of which is by grace, not by our own achievement and our own success. And so just having that mentality and that attitude of trusting God is a way to live out dependence. God's word says this about his sovereignty over life and death. This passage from Deuteronomy Chapter 32, verse 39. This is the song of Moses celebrating after God's deliverance from the Red Sea, from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. And he's got this word from the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Life and death is in our Lord's hands. And there may be times where he wants to bring about recovery down the road that we would eliminate if we took matters into our own hand. There may be other things that he is doing in our life, regardless of what's going on, when it comes to dependence, we want to humble ourselves and worship the living God. And then when we think about life, we just want to have gratitude. Life is a gift from God. He's our creator and our sustainer. We talked about that a lot, but he's also our taker awayer. We're entrusted with this life, and we're called to steward it well, both in living and in dying. We must live with a gratitude that trusts God in what he is doing, regardless of the condition of our lives. And that is something that is tough going on. Value, fear, and autonomy are common issues that arise in euthanasia. Uh, there are three corollaries that I see just by experience going on as well, and, and that is suffering. And so obviously that bubbles up in this quality of life uh, discussion. And it bubbles up any time that we really try to promote life. Uh, Nathan and, and uh, Julie uh, shared that so beautifully uh, about the, the struggles, the tensions, about the need to rely on the Lord through the difficulties and the hardships of living in obedience to Him and, and seeing Him come through. Suffering is seen throughout Scripture as causing people to draw deep on God. We see the pattern of suffering in the life of our Savior, of Jesus Christ, as you read through the Gospels. 
especially when you read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We know by experience that some of our greatest times of communion with the Lord have been in deep times of suffering because that's when a lot of the dross is cleared away of our lives, a lot of the distractions, and that is when we cry out. And that is when the Lord often brings us to a point of saying yes to whatever he has for us. And we see his strength come through. He does supply strength in these situations. I would say love is a second corollary that should arise in the conversation with euthanasia. Uh, You guys stole a lot of my passages today. You mentioned laying down your life for your friend. John 15, there's no greater life, love than, than to lay down your life for a friend, for a loved one, for someone who needs to be dignified, for the least and the marginalized, by valuing people and esteeming them. Regardless of the condition, if we dignify someone, if we value them, if we hold their life as sacred, we can love them, and they can experience that love. And quite often, they can experience that love even when they're unresponsive to us. We've seen lots of research done on that in terms of what people even in comas experience as family and friends gather around the bed. End-of-life moments are incredible times to express love. love The Lord is often gracious to peel away distractions and petty thoughts and actions and cause us to focus on people made in His image. Relationships are deepened as life stories are shared. Reconciliation often comes about. I've seen some of the most beautiful times of reconciliation within a family uh, on the deathbed. And the days or the weeks that, that the Lord gave to a family that had been struggling for years. Suffering and love and growth. Third one is growth. Transformation takes place in the dying in the person that is dying, in the person that is end of life. It is so easy for us when we aren't thinking about the sacred sanctity of life to just write them off as plateaued, as an object, as a a person in a bed that we are willing to come sit with. But they are still a person with a soul. They are still a person that God can work in and and, uh, keep transforming into Christ-likeness. Uh, and obvious, I'm fully aware that there are many times uh, when uh, they are not themselves and, and they are not capable of uh, interacting. Um, but there is still that opportunity for God to work. But even better, there's that opportunity for God to work in you and me as we uh, talk and serve and promote the sanctity of life by serving those who are at end of life, by learning how to love them, by bringing them comfort, uh, by sharing life with them at such a sacred moment and precious moment. Value, fear, and autonomy are common issues that arise with euthanasia. Suffering and love and, and growth, I think, are positives that we can count on when we choose to treat life as sacred, especially end of life. So our calling is to value life as sacred from conception to death. And our ministry at end of life is to bring support and comfort to those, to express love to them. And our cultural 
engagement is to reject legalization of euthanasia. There are eight states right now in the United States that have it legalized. And when you see it come up, fight tooth and nail and pray. Pray this week. I challenge you to pray every day using the prayer points on the card. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. And we need you in such weighty areas. Um, We thank you that uh, even discussing this issue of euthanasia draws us back to you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you live in us and give us your life, your eternal life, by faith. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for opening our eyes through Nathan and Julie, not only to how a heart works when it reaches out to one in need and and how it expresses and presents um, and promotes sanctity of life. But I thank you, Lord, for their honesty and and for the way that you have strengthened them over the years and and the way that you not only brought them to this conclusion to adopt, but the the way that you continue to serve them and grow them. And I thank you, Lord, that they're in our church family and that we can serve alongside. Lord, we ask for strength and for eyes that are kind and willing to look at the world in a way that promotes the sacred sanctity of life that you have created. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Great is your love toward me. 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 Great is your love toward me.
Great is your love toward me. Great is your love toward me. 